0: So much about Christ in 1 John, so much about salvation, about heaven, so much here. And I hope you're enjoying it. And tonight we'll be looking at the sanctifying power of hope. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 3. And as we read through these passages, I want you to have on your mind uh, the, the title to this sermon, and, and perhaps you'll begin to see the, the purpose of that title As we read through it, 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Lord, help us as we look into your word tonight to understand the wonderful power of hope and how it urges us. To be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these passages, John reveals the sanctifying power of the believer's hope. Specifically, John's talking about the hope of the second coming of Christ. Notice in verse 28, you see that phrase, "...when He shall appear." And then look in chapter 3, verse 2, you see that same phrase again. The idea is true believers, those who know Christ, those who have been born again, look forward to the day when the eastern sky will split and Jesus Christ will return for His own. Uh, We look forward to going to heaven because we know that when we get to heaven, we're going to see the one who purchased our salvation. That's what John's talking about here. The hope here that John's talking about isn't some possible reality. Sometimes we think of hope. We might think of, well, I hope it happens. Perhaps it will happen. But that's not what the word here means in the Greek. It's not a word that means something that's based on speculation or something that's based on positive thinking. The idea here is that this is an assurance. We are confident of this thing. And this confidence that we have that Christ is going to return This confidence changes the way that we live. And so now we're going to look tonight at how John tells us that our hope, our confidence in the second coming of Christ changes the way that we live our life. The first thing I want you to see is the confidence that Christ will return compels us to abide in Christ. The confidence that Christ will return compels us to abide in Christ. The word abide means to continue in. John also wrote the gospel of John used that word in in John chapter 15. And he told us these things. He said that when you abide in Christ, you bear fruit. When you abide in Christ, you experience answered prayer. When you abide in Christ, you glorify God. When you uh, abide in Christ, you experience the deep love of God. And when you abide in Christ, you experience joy. If you go back and read John's gospel, you'll see that all All of those things are the result of abiding in Christ. Now, in layman's terms, to abide in Christ means to continue in Christ. It means to keep loving Christ. It means to keep obeying Christ. Now, there's some truths that we can draw out of that. First of all, the very obvious one, we must abide in Christ. What does that mean? That means that that God does not save you apart from a personal relationship with Him. There's an abiding in this relationship. There's a lot of people who abide in religion, but there's very few people who actually abide in Christ because to abide in Christ means that you're devoted to Him. You seek to please the Lord with the way that you live your life. You you search the Scriptures because you want to know what His will is. Being a Christian is far more about Christ than it is about us. Christ is now our life. Now, know, one of the most searching things that, that we can do is ask ourselves what we think about Jesus. Ask ourselves that question, Kyle, what, what do you think about Jesus? Because our response to the very person of Christ, who Christ is in our lives, is far more important than anything else is. You should never outgrow Jesus. You should never get over Jesus. Jesus should be not only the object of your faith in your Christian life, but Jesus should always be the object of your affection. It's the person of Christ that you're devoted to. Speaking of the second coming, Paul said that it was imperative that that we love Jesus because 1 Corinthians 16 22 teaches us that if any man loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns, he says they will be anathema maranatha, which means they will be cursed when Jesus returns. When Christ returns, who is he looking for? He's looking for people who love him, have affection toward him. Now, there are some that don't abide in Christ, obviously. John tells us that such people are going to be ashamed when the Lord returns. And I think we need to understand John here is talking about lost people. He's not talking about saved people. John, as we've said before, loves to make contrast in his writing. Here he's contrasting the lost, those that are ashamed at the coming of the Lord, with the saved, those that are looking forward to Christ's return with confidence. There are people who, who even among the church, who for some time perhaps grew up in church, and as John said in the the previous chapter, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out from us, that it might be made manifest that they were not of us. There are people who who began in the Christian faith, appeared to be sincere, but somewhere along the line, when it came to the hard doctrines of the Bible, they began to be ashamed of those doctrines. And one of those doctrines is the return of Christ. They think, you know what? Jesus isn't really going to return... All that stuff about him stepping out on the clouds and him coming for his own, that's not going to happen. These are the people who are ashamed of the coming of Christ. These are people who do not abide in Christ, but instead they were abiding in religion. And because they were in religion and not in Christ, they forsook the Lord. Now the third little thought we can get from this is continuing in good works is proof of our abiding in Christ. We see that in verse 29. John says that we know that He is righteous. Now, who is He? He refers to Jesus. God is perfectly holy. There's no sin whatsoever in Him. And believers are, what does He say, born of Him. That is, we are created by this new birth. Second Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. John loves to use that idea of the new birth. He uses it many times to explain the transformation that takes place when a person is saved. We see it in John 3 3. We see it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. We see it in John, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. He loves to talk about this new new birth. And when a person is born again, John says that good works come. So therefore, our works are not what justifies us. We're working because we've been born of God. We can't even take credit for the good works. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God which works in you, both to do and to will of His good pleasure. So even when it comes to our good works, folks, it's God. It's not us. And the proof that we've been born again is this righteous life that we're now living because we're in Christ. And we live that new life because the very nature of God, the Bible says in Peter, that we have been made partakers of the divine nature. The very nature of God has been imputed to us, church. We are now holy on the inside. And because we are holy on the inside, there is a desire and a hunger to live for God. And we do that because we've been born again. Righteous living is the natural result of a union with a holy God when you are united with a holy God righteous works are, is a very natural result and so we see there that this is the proof how do we know we abide in Christ we, we know because he abides in us and through us there's a new life that's being lived now those that abide in Christ are confident when Christ returns, John tells us that in verse 28 of chapter 2. Now he, he, he mentions the believer's confidence also in chapter 3, verse 21. In chapter 4, verse 17. Also in chapter 5, verse 14. John wants you to know that if you are saved, you can be bold in that relationship with Christ. In that very well-known verse in Hebrews, we can approach the throne of grace boldly because of who we are in Christ. Friend, if you are saved today, if you know Christ, if you've been born again, you can look to the heavens with joyful expectancy. Knowing that Christ is going to return and happy that Christ is going to return. You know, there are people, even people who come to church, if you were just to to start a conversation with these people... About the return of Christ. Not getting to, into any seals being broken or, or any, you know, they've got their big big chart up on the wall. I'm not talking about that kind of conversation. But the kind of conversation that, that might go something like this. Boy, i tell you what. I just wish today Jesus would come back. Don't you? Well, I don't know about that. Try it sometime. Even in the church. But yet, Jesus said, when you pray, when you pray, you're supposed to pray for the return of Christ. That things on earth would be as they are in heaven. If you're saved, if you know the Lord, a very natural thing is to desire to see the Lord Jesus return. Not to be ashamed of this doctrine of the return of Christ, but to rejoice in this doctrine of the return of Christ. And to think each and every day, and, and, and here's, a, here's something to challenge yourself to do. It may not be easy, I don't know. Just every day, just start praying, Lord, come back today. Amen. Lord, come back today. What did he say? Pray this, Thy kingdom come. Amen? That's what that prayer means. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Each and every day, when you pray, Lord, won't you come back today? Won't you come back today? There is a joyful expectancy that should be in the heart of every person who knows Christ. That comes from this hope, this confidence that you have in who Christ is. Now, the second thing I want you to see is the confidence that Christ will return causes us to meditate on the deep love of God. The confidence that Christ will return causes us to meditate on the deep love of God. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1. By the way, one of my favorite verses. Look at that verse, y'all. Behold what manner... Of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. You see that phrase, behold what manner? That's a very beautiful phrase. John is revealing to us that he is astonished. He is astonished at the love of God. He doesn't even have words to explain it. I want us to consider a few truths from that that verse there. First of all, John is specifically talking about God's redemptive love. He's amazed at the love that led God to call us to be His own children. It was God's love, church, that moved Him to save us. It wasn't our pitiful state, as pitiful as we were. As pitiful as we were, unsaved church, it was not our pitiful state that led God to save it. It wasn't our, our our constant effort to establish our own righteousness. God didn't look down and say, "Boy, they really are trying hard." And since they're trying hard, I might as well save them. It wasn't that, folks. It wasn't even our prayers. It wasn't even our prayers that moved God to save us. It was His love. First and foremost, it was the very love of God that led Him to save us. John expresses that greatly in, in chapter 4, verses uh, 9 and 10 as well. We'll get to that uh, eventually. I'm not going to go there now. We'll get to it later, uh, not in this sermon. But there's no greater manifestation of love than what Christ has done for sinners. Romans 5.8 says that... God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. Now I want you to know that John saw the crucifixion with his own eyes. He saw your Savior nailed to that cross. He saw it. And understanding the meaning of the crucifixion put him in a state of awe. He was amazed that God loved the world so much that he would sacrifice his only son for sinners so that you and I could become the children of God. So when he says, behold what manner, you need to understand, church, that he's speaking with astonishment. And I'm telling you, folks, we ought to speak with astonishment. We ought to every day think about how much God loves us. I have said it so many times, and you're probably tired of hearing it, but but you just you can't doubt the love of God. All you have to do is look at the cross. God is not going to give you a better expression of His love than He's already given you. You can worry to death whether or not God loves you and say, well, God, you didn't do things the way I thought you should do them, so you must not love me. Or, Lord, you've allowed this terrible trial to come into my life. You must not love me. You can do that if you want to. But I want to tell you, if you're trying to get God to do something to show you that He loves you, then, friend, that's never going to happen because the greatest thing He could have ever done to show you that He loves you, He's already done. It was done on Calvary. It was done between two thieves. That is the love of God, church. And you should never doubt the love of God. And John just gets lost in that love here. Behold, what manner of love. Now, unbelievers don't understand the love experience between God and his children. John says, therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. The world didn't get Jesus, I guess we could say. And the world doesn't get believers either. Christ was rejected by the world. John's saying believers should expect to be rejected as well. Now this is something I think that we need to understand because we grow so weary of of trying to build churches and so weary of trying to do what we can do to make the world like us so that the world hopefully will then get saved. But, But what we need to understand is the love of God can't be just taught. It has to be experienced. And it can only be experienced through the new birth. It's like me trying to explain to you how much I love my mom. You can't really get that because you don't have that relationship that I have with my mother. And in the same way, you cannot really truly explain to a lost person what it's like to be saved because they don't have an established relationship with the Lord like you do as a Christian. There's an experiential part of this that comes through the Holy Spirit. And those who are unsaved, who reject the Spirit, can't comprehend it. The world will look at a person devoted to Jesus and and they'll look at Him with disdain. They'll wonder why in the world would a person give up the pleasures of this world for a God that they've never seen. And what they don't understand is the relationship we have with God, that we have experienced God, we've experienced His love, we've we've seen the provisions that God has given us, we've seen God moving in our lives and all of us could just write a book, couldn't we? Of all the wonderful things that God has done for us. Have we seen Him? No, we haven't seen Him, but we will. And we know we will, and He's told us that. More than anything, you know what the believer's experienced? More than anything, the believer has experienced the forgiveness of sin. The love of God made evident to us. And those without Christ may think we're silly. Those without Christ may think we're superstitious. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. We're different because we're convinced that the God of the universe loves us. We're convinced that the God of the universe cares for us, that He knows how many hairs are on each of our heads. These are people who are not convinced of the second coming of Christ because they are not convinced of the first coming of Christ. And nothing you can ever do would ever change their mind, the only hope they have is that they would be saved and they would begin to see truthfully through the eyes of the Holy Spirit who God is. You know, sometimes we talk about things like this as Baptists, and sometimes we don't, but it seemed as if we talked more about it when things were simple. You know, when we didn't have to have conferences and everything, we just had... The understanding that people need to be saved, and if they'll get saved, man, God will work in their life, you know. But we've given up on that, and we've went so many different ways. But but one of the things that I've, I've loved to hear through the years is a person who gets saved, and and there's this common theme in in people that I've seen who have been who have been obviously saved. They'll, they'll say it's, they'll say something around this around this. They'll say it was like a great burden was lifted off them. Of Amen? Let's say it was like a great burden. Now, something you can't really explain. But you can experience. Amen? And I know that. I know that when I was saved, it was like a, a great heaviness. A great burden was removed. And release was given. And confidence was given. And the conscience was now clear. Because of Christ. The world can't experience that. They don't know Him. And the only way they can ever experience what we experience is if they come to know Christ. Now the third major point here out of this text is is the confidence that Christ will return causes us to look forward to the change that will take place when Jesus appears. The confidence that Christ will return causes us to look forward to the change that's going to take place in us when Jesus appears. John says that we are the sons of God right now. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. What does that mean? That means that if you're saved right now, you are just as saved as you'll ever be. Amen? That's good, isn't it? If you're saved right now, you are just as saved as you'll ever be. You've already been adopted by God. You've already been born again. You've already been given a place in heaven. You've got a seat at the table. But there is still yet a change that's going to take place. And every person who knows Christ knows that, don't they? You know what? It's good to be saved, but I know God's not done yet. You know you can't live forever with the body you've got now. If you're like me, buddy, it's hard every day. Amen? And Jim Ray, we're talking just about... We got, we got tired just talking about walking up steps a while ago. We weren't even walking up and we were just talking about it. You live very long, you'll see. Boy, I tell you what, that eternity thing is going... I'm going to have to have a new set of tires or something for that. I want us to think about some things that are going to happen when Jesus returns. First of all, we will be completely rid of the sin nature. John says that we will be like Jesus when Jesus appears. Now Jesus was without sin, and the biggest battle you have in your life is sin. Amen. Whether you, re- you might not realize that, but it is it's the most important battle you have in your life. That's the biggest one: the battle of sin. And, and you know battling sin causes sorrow, it causes shame. It's a difficult thing when you know how much God loves you and you know what God has done for you, and then you know that you fail Him. Listen, if it doesn't bother you that you fail God, something's wrong with you. Amen. And we still fail Him, don't we? We still fail Him every day. Did something I shouldn't have done, or didn't do something I should have did? Maybe it was just a thought. Maybe it was just an idea. But every day we battle with that. But the Bible teaches that in heaven there is no sorrow and there is no shame. That means that there's not going to be any battle with sin. Your body is going to be changed in such a way that it can't be influenced by sin. You won't have the ability to sin and you won't have the desire to sin. That's a wonderful thing. The Bible says of heaven that nothing evil enters there. There's not going to be another trial period where Satan falls and a third of the angels are cast. That's not going to happen anymore. You get to heaven, you're going to get a body, and you're going to be like Jesus, the Bible says. You're not even going to be able to sin. You're going to be completely rid of the sin nature. Now listen, you'll remember that you were a sinner. You'll remember that you failed God, because when the Bible shows us what the worship songs in heaven are like in the book of Revelation, they're constantly singing about redemption, about the blood of Jesus. So you'll remember that you were a sinner and then you will know in heaven that you can't sin anymore and that reality will give you such joy. Such joy. You ever do that to yourself? You ever ever just think, oh, I'm I'm going to sin. I know I'm going to. I know I'm going to. I know I'm going to. And then the Lord will... And you'll say, whew, thank you, Lord. thought I was going to mess up right here. That won't happen in heaven. Secondly, we'll have a glorified body. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says we'll have a body that can't decay. He says every believer is going to get it. Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? The idea there is when it comes to your resurrection body, the resurrected Christ is the prototype. When the Bible says you'll be like him, it doesn't mean you'll have eyes like flaming fire. It doesn't mean that you'll have a voice like thunder. It doesn't mean you'll have a hair like wool. That's not what he means when he says you'll be like Christ. He means that when Christ rose from the dead, that physical body that Jesus had will be the same type of body that you get in heaven. Your new body will resemble the body that Jesus had when he rose from the dead. What happened with Jesus with that body? Well, he walked with that body, didn't he? In heaven, you'll walk. He talked with that body. In heaven, you'll talk. It was a tangible body. They thought he was a spirit. He said, "Put forth your hand." He said, "Touch me." He said, "Does a spirit have flesh and bones?" They touched him. Jesus was physical. You'll have a physical body in heaven. Jesus ate with his new body. Good news, church. We eat in heaven. Amen. We—that's a long time not to eat, y'all. <laughs> Amen. He drank with that body. We will drink in heaven. And then he ascended to heaven with that body. And the Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, one of these days, that your body's going to be changed. If you know Christ, and you'll ascend to heaven with him. When Christ appears, we will be like him when he rose from the dead. Revelation 21:4 says that with our new bodies. We will never again experience tears or death or sorrow or crying or pain. What a blessing that's going to be, amen, to have a new body. So we will have a nature that cannot sin. We will have a body that cannot decay. And then we see that we will see Christ as He is. Notice that John says that Christ will appear and that we will see Him as He is. That we will see God, church, face to face. We'll see God in all of His fullness. You and I have no idea, by the way, of how absolutely amazing that's going to be. We have scriptures that show us shadows of that. Uh, scriptures like Isaiah 6 where he said, I saw the Lord high in his temple. Uh, scriptures like Ezekiel chapter 1 where he saw the beautiful rainbow. Uh, scriptures like Revelation chapter 1 when, when John saw the glorified Christ and fell on his face as a dead man. But we can only scratch the surface in our understanding of how amazing this event's going to be. That when you and I actually see God. And thinking about how we're going to respond to that might actually be a little more beneficial. Because when you see Him, what are you going to do? You're going to erupt in worship like you have never worshipped before. You want to see what you're going to do? Read Revelation 5 and you'll see it. You're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to be overjoyed at His appearing. I think that when we see Christ in all of His fullness, church, I think that even even the Baptists will shout. Even the Baptists will dance. We'll prostrate ourselves. We'll sing. We'll lift up our hands. We'll jump up and down. Sometimes we may even be silent. We'll stand in awe. But we will respond in a glorious way when we see God face-to-face, church. When He appears, we're going to see Him. And the promise of our personal privilege of beholding God face to face should give us hope. We shouldn't, see, we shouldn't think about this now, okay, like seeing God is like this one-time thing, like going to the Grand Canyon and seeing that. No, it's not like that. When you see God, church, you see Him for all of eternity. And God is so awesome, God is so awesome that even though you look at Him for all of eternity... His beauty will never grow dim. God will always be the most intriguing and the most beautiful being you have ever seen, even though you see Him for all of eternity. And knowing that, knowing that as we will eternally behold God in all of His beauty, and we will continue to be amazed at that, should encourage us to live holy lives. Because the object of our affection is holy, and his holiness is what makes him so beautiful, his holiness is what makes him so different than every other being in all the world. now, finally, I want you to see this that the promise i 'm sorry, the confidence that Christ will return impacts every true believer. We see that in chapter three, verse three. look what he says in every man that has this hope in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. John says that every person that has the hope of Christ's return within him purifies himself. Purify, it that describes the process of sanctification. Sanctification, we've already said this the other day, below, uh, uh, means that we cooperate with the Spirit of God to grow in grace to be more holy. The Holy Spirit leads us into righteousness, we follow Him into righteousness. And while it is the responsibility of the believer to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, John makes it clear that true believers will. He says every man will do this. That doesn't mean that every person who's a Christian is going to be at the same spiritual level. But it does mean this, that in the life of every true believer, there is a measure of purity. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So that means that if you want to be rejoicing at the appearing of Christ, there has to be a purity in your heart. The Apostle Paul spoke of that purifying process in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, when he said this, he said, But we all, with open face, beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul perfectly illustrates what John is saying here. As we put our mind and our heart on Christ, we inevitably are changed in our character. And that change leads to a life of holiness. And the more we think of Christ, the more we meditate on Christ, the more we will seek to be like Christ. He that has this hope in Him purifies Himself even as He is pure. It's the sanctifying power of hope your mind is on this beautiful, wonderful Christ that will return. And it's that hope that leads you to a holy life. A life of sanctification. And then as we close, I want to consider a few verses that speak of the believer's hope. Psalm 146.5 says, Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord God. Psalm 43 5 says, Why art thou cast down on my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the help of my countenance and my God. Romans 8.24 says, For we are saved by hope. Romans 15.4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. In 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again <clears throat> unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Folks, no one has the hope that believers have. No one. And it's that hope that urges us to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And so if you want to know the people who are sincerely looking for the return of Christ, those who aren't ashamed, what you do is you look out there, not not at people who simply go to church, but you look at these people who love Christ and they're looking forward to the day. And he's going to split the eastern sky and take those who know him to be with him. There could be no greater contrast than the contrast between the response of the lost and saved on the day Jesus returns. The Bible says there they are running for their lives. There they are saying, Rocks fall on me. There they are scared to death. And here's the others. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Are you looking forward to his return, church? I can tell. Y'all look so happy about it. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the sanctifying.